There is nothing to worry about. Hello, you're listening to an adequate podcast by me, John Paul Flintoff. It's about creative self-expression through writing, drawing and speaking. And it's adequate because I can't do perfect. I don't know about you, but I found that robotic voice at the beginning of this episode terribly worrying, even though it was saying there is nothing to worry about. I found it again on the website freesound.com. I think it's .com. Anyway, look up freesound. I just quite like enjoy. I quite enjoy putting in. Um, blah, 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 blah. Not talking straight, am I? I just quite like using funny sound effects and blithering like I am now. So let's get on with something more serious. But let's hear that nothing to worry about again. There is nothing to worry about. In the previous episode, I had a message from Tom Biggleston asking about how a conference or a festival had been organised. And I'm going to come back to answering that soon. But I want to tell you first about a man who had a very unusual dream. He's someone I wrote about for a magazine long before lockdown. And I'm going to read you from that story. But because it's a relatively long magazine story, I just want to be completely upfront. I'm not going to read the whole thing in this episode. The story was advertised on the cover of the magazine I wrote it for. It had a picture of this man looking into the distance. And and this is how the story read. It's not easy, said Brendan Barnes, assuming his customary expression of bottomless anxiety. This is a massive personal cost. Half a million pounds, and I can't afford that unless we get the right number of delegates. We have six weeks to get another 200 people. Worst case scenario, I lose my home. Do I have sleepless nights? I do. Barnes's features, usually hidden behind metal framed specks, are rounded and blurry. Cropped hair sits above his pale face with all the elegance of half a coconut. He shakes hands feebly, stands awkwardly, and has a tendency to say the wrong thing. All the same, he's capable of rousing considerable support from friends and colleagues in his revolutionary mission to reinvent the business conference. The first time we met, Barnes spared no effort detailing the bitter tedium of conferences he's attended, and explaining how he intends to enliven his own event, scheduled to take place a few weeks later. Most conferences, he says, offer stale sandwiches and too strong coffee. Speakers rarely mingle with punters. PowerPoint presentations, cramming too many facts into too many slides, put the audience to sleep. At Barnes's event, it will be punters, not speakers, who set the agenda by sending him in advance details of the topics that concern them most, and Barnes will hire the best available speakers to address those issues. I'm intrigued by Barnes and his crazy dream. I have a hunch it could be interesting to follow him as he struggles to save the two-bedroom flat behind St Paul's he has remortgaged in order to finance this groundbreaking event. Obviously, he concedes, we're not going to make money in the first year, but with the right momentum, four or five years down the line, it could be a commercial success. Inspired by the World Economic Forum, Barnes is aiming high. I want to build a Davos, he says. By his own account, Barnes is an unlikely entrepreneur. 
He grew up in Dorset, the youngest child of parents who worked in the health sector. They always encouraged me, he says, but they've never been able to give me financial support. A lot of those people like Charles Dunstan, Stelios Hadjuani and Richard Branson had rich backgrounds. Me, if I lose everything, well, I started with nothing and I'll go back to nothing. At Poole Grammar School, Barnes failed his A-levels. After working as a waiter, he retook them at night school, supporting himself by stacking shelves at Tesco. With two A's and a B, he decided to be the first in his family to go to university, the London School of Economics. I studied Plato and Aristotle and all the great thinkers. He also founded a political club, inviting high-profile speakers, and after graduating went to work at the heart of New Labour, including a stint as Tony Blair's research assistant. But in time he concluded that politicians are full of shit and after power, and in 1996 he left. He set up an agency supplying speakers to business events. And after that, he hit on the conference's idea. Last summer, he wrote to Charles Handy, Britain's most celebrated management guru, asking him to take part in the first London Business Forum. Handy's wife, who doubled as his agent, was taken by him. Elizabeth said, there's this impressive young man with an interesting idea, Handy remembers, and I think we should see him. Having secured Handy for his customary substantial fee, Barnes built the rest of the event around him. He booked a venue, Excel in the Docklands, hired event organisers and sent out Bumpf promising a discount of 40% off the full price of £1,000 to anybody who booked before the end of January. In mid-February, however, with six weeks to go, Barnes was despondent. In fact, he'd been thinking of abandoning the entire project. Friends assured him that the idea was sound, but they were worried that amid economic gloom, people were declining to spend money on conferences. Roughly 700 had put in a request for information. We are hounding them, saying that there are only a couple of places left and they have to sign up quickly. But in fact, fewer than 200 have signed up, and Barnes needs three times as many. Two weeks later, I visited Barnes at his office for a meeting with his event managers, Simon Hambly, Managing Director of Acclaim, the events organisers, and freelance consultants Emma Chesters and Richard Knight. There was a lot on the agenda. For a lively start to the event, Barnes wanted to engage musicians. A London-based orchestra would cost about £12,000, so he approached the Sarajevo Symphony Orchestra, offering 3000 and started work finding cheap flights. Another novelty will be name badges, which Barnes wants only to show four names, not surnames, job titles, or the name of a delegate's company. There will also be a thought wall on which delegates can write up ideas during breaks. Moving on to food and drink, which Barnes wishes to be lavish and varied, Chester wondered whether to do something wacky with paper cups. Alternatively, she suggested, we could get mugs. It's almost as cheap to make them as to hire them. Hiring a mug, she said, costs £4.50. This has a visibly demoralising effect on Barnes. While the discussion moves on, he sits silently. After a while, he says, how can they justify £4.50 for a mug? 
Afterwards, he takes me downstairs to meet his team, including Aisha Simone Ishmael, who runs the database. To date, 190 people have confirmed attendance, she says. Of those, 165 have also paid. We haven't been that strict till now, Barnes notes, but with only a month to go. He abandons the sentence to say that Unilever told him that they never pay for this kind of thing in advance and yet they want the early bird price. They're not coming, he says grimly. A week before the big day, I call Barnes. He sounds glum. I'm having good days and bad days, he says. Good hours and bad hours. One of his colleagues, Nina Parson, tells me Barnes is susceptible to incredible mood swings. Nevertheless, she says, he's great to work for. It sounds sappy, but he really cares about us. I did think about leaving for a while, but he took us out to lunch and apologised for his moods. He said we could stop writing our CVs. His melancholy is understandable. Bookings have dried up, Barnes says. Have we had a booking today? No. Did we get one yesterday? We had two. This is the worst time in ten years for this kind of event. People have frozen their budgets. Consequently, he has abandoned the glitzy XL in favour of a cheaper, smaller venue beneath railway arches on some wasteland east of Liverpool Street. I did have in my mind that if we had to change venues, I would be a failure. But at the end of the day, successful failure is not based on the venue. We still have to pay XL 40000 he says. But we're saving 130000 We were looking at spending 30000 just to lay carpets. He's also revisited Handy to ask that he avoid rehashing his most recent book. I said I wanted him to talk about something else. He said what? I said you tell me, that's why I'm employing you. Did Handy like being spoken to like this? He loved it, I think. Also, Barnes told Handy not to use an overhead projector, which Barnes considers nearly as boring as using PowerPoint. Instead, they came up with the idea that Handy could write on canvas with fat marker pens, or paint with a mop. But Handy said no. Barnes's solution? I said, how about doing it as graffiti with an aerosol? If it doesn't work, he can use an overhead projector. Our last meeting takes place one day before the conference. For the first time, Barnes looks cheerful. It's like before exams, he explains, bounding towards me from behind his desk. Further revision is useless. Altogether, 262 delegates have confirmed attendance. I'm happy that we have some small companies coming, says Barnes, but I like greater numbers from the larger organisations. If BP wanted to put on something like this, they would spend a fortune. Some people are paying £250 and others paying £600. I've tried to be fair. If you're a small company trying to do something with the environment and you offer 250 I might say OK. But £50, that's insulting. The food alone costs £60 per person, and he reverts to his familiar bruised solemnity. I'm going to stop there. In the next episode, I'll tell you what happens when I turned up at Barnes's event. What's happening now? This is what's happening now. If you're a regular listener, you may remember that a few episodes ago, I used some audio that I'd pinched from some other people's videos, and I apologised for doing it. And I was disappointed because I really enjoyed the sound of someone saying, what's happening now? 
But as you just heard, I have now got somebody else to record it. I'm very pleased with that recording. And so I'm going to be using that for the moment. But the next thing I wanted to share with you is a very short interview with Dr. Guy Haywood, who is a very big cheese at the British Pilgrimage Trust. And Guy is one of the people who inspired me to do the virtual pilgrimage, which is going to be happening in April this year. He uh, did this interview with me a whole year ago before last year's virtual pilgrimage in the first lockdown. And uh, it just happened to coincide with the publication of his book, A Guide to Pilgrimages All Over the UK, which I strongly recommend. Anyway, in this snippet from the chat that we had last year, Guy talks about how he might be best placed to join our virtual pilgrimage when we, uh, well, we're not actually going to Winchester, but when we sort of seem to be in Winchester, because that's where we'll be walking around on Google Street View online, and he can share stories. He also mentions an author I really have come to like a lot, very unfashionable author from the Edwardian period called Hilaire Belloc, who was incredibly prolific at writing. And uh, so that's what Guy will, will be mentioning. And he gives you a couple of remarkable stories about some saints who could be encountered if we were doing a more normal real world pilgrimage and actually going into places like Winchester Cathedral. Anyway, the point of this is to give you a taste of what it might be like to do a virtual pilgrimage and to hear stories from me from Guy and I'm sure from others too, possibly including you. I have no idea what we'll do, but it just could be a sort of a daily punctuation mark, a bit of companionship. Yeah, okay. What, so one 40-minute session with me, is that what you're saying? Well, I, I, what I would really like is to have regular companions. Oh, I see, okay. <laughs> but but if, you, if you sort of drop out that's absolutely fine because a lot of people are going to be thinking i can't do 10 o'clock every day to be honest it would make sense for me to just pop in yeah in places i actually know something about you know so winchester i know i I know really well i've got quite a lot to say about winchester brilliant as i'm sure you do too but you know from a different perspective um and then um i'm you know i i it was one of the first pilgrimages i well it was the first pilgrimage as I consciously called a pilgrimage was from Winchester to Canterbury along that that way the North Downs Pilgrim's Way actually it's just known as the Pilgrim's Way to Canterbury yes. the Pilgrim's Way um Hilaire Belloc slightly claimed that um by just by writing the old road it's either the four men or the old road any one of those is that two the one but... the Farago of something or other oh, I don't with, know. With I'm four... not actually I'm not a Belloc specialist, okay. but, um, okay. and I haven't read it, but okay. I know that he basically, through that book, created it. But also, interestingly enough, there's another writer of the period who he created it with called Julia Cartwright, okay. who's a major name in the pilgrimage revival of the late, ni- the late 19th century, I think. And um, weirdly, and this was really weird, one of our trustees, well, the, the first trustee of the British Pilgrimage Trust is a friend of mine called William Cartwright Hignett. A year or two into um, being a trustee, he, he found this book by his great-great-grandmother, Julia Cartwright, right. who basically invented The Pilgrim's Way to, to Canterbury. Now, it's not necessarily an invention, but 
And there's a logic to it because obviously it follows this this spring line at the bottom of the North Downs. But um, and the, the churches are amazing, and and there's a sense that, that pilgrims would watch. And also with the geographical ridge, yes, that, that it just it kind of lends itself to a line through the landscape that joins two places slightly from yeah. Farnham onwards. So it's not necessarily an invention, but anyway, that's the, that's the kind of basis from from my in terms of my contribution. I know a little bit about St. Martha's near Guildford. There's, um, I've got the, the Winchester bit, maybe somewhere we could talk about Watercress at Itchin, but I, I can't remember. It's so long ago. It's in 2015 or 14. I did my first one. It was 2014. So I can't, right. I can't remember all of it really. Well, it, so I'm, I'm trying to be genuinely open to people wanting to be in it all the time or not. And, so if you want to pop in for the bits that you know about, that would be brilliant. And if you only want to yeah. do one day and you think this is awful, then that's that's fine. Well, why don't I have a look at the the thing, the the, the Pilgrim's Way page that we've that I made recently actually, because for this book I had to write this synopsis of the Pilgrim's Way. Yes. Um, I'm just looking at it now. Oh, the old road. Okay, that's what it says. <laughs> you want to share your screen? Oh, since so with. Uh, I suppose I could, yeah. That's what and we then do. Can, we get a sneak preview of your book, and it'll be quite exciting. Well, no, 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 no. This isn't the book. This is actually on. This is available already on the website. Oh, okay, right. So what you see on the web page, actually, to be honest, is the script that's in the book. Okay, it's not right. any different. The book is. It's more contextualizing for the all of the holy places that are in the rest of the book. Yes. Um, but since Swithin is an interesting one. Each of these cathedrals have like a kind of major saint that is buried in the most holy part of the cathedral. So, so these people, whoever they were, were of major importance. They often have like weird stories attached to them. Like since within, I think there was a poor lady walking over a bridge with a basket of eggs and then they all smashed and she's really sad. And then he turns, turns around and goes, don't worry about it. And then waves his hand or something. And then all the, the eggs come back together again. You know, that's like the most famous story about St. Swithin. You know, this whole cathedral has been built around him. Right. And this story about him fixing some eggs for a poor woman. You know, we were a different species back then. Like, you yeah, know, we the stories that, in, that, uh, that inspired people to build things were just very different. And then the butterfly bishop is next to him. And uh, he... He had to prove something to King Arthur and Guinevere or something. The story, he had to prove that he knew King Arthur or something like that. I can't remember. But he then, that someone said, well, go on then, prove it if you're so holy or something. And so he, he opened his hand and a butterfly came out of it. Right. For example. So right. That, that's just in Winchester. And then there are all these other stories. But I can tell them when we actually do this. Yes. Well, this has been quite a busy episode so far already. What with that, there is nothing to be afraid of sound and then me blithering and then me reading to you the story about Brendan Barnes and how he staked his, his home on the quixotic dream of a new type of business conference. And then I kept you in suspense, promising that I'll tell you what happened to him in the next episode. And then I, and then I gave you a, a wonderful shot of Guy Haywood energy. Um, oh yeah, and that new bit of audio saying what's happening now. So I'm I'm really 
piling it on. But while I've got your interest for a second in Hilaire Belloc, I'd just like to read you a couple of things I wrote down in my notebook about him uh, this time last year when I was doing some research towards my latest book. And this is just from Wikipedia. It's not exactly complicated research, but this is one of the reasons why I like Belloc. Belloc was an orator, a poet, a sailor, a satirist, a letter writer, soldier and MP as well as one of the most prolific writers of the early 20th century. He wrote more than 150 books. Asked why so much, he said, because my children are howling for pearls and caviar. Some other little facts about him. He was a French soldier before he went to Balliol at Oxford, where he became president of the Union. He lost one son in the First World War and another in the Second. When he was courting his future wife, he walked from the Midwest to her home in Northern California, paying, as it were, for lodging by drawing his hosts and reciting poetry. And I suppose that that gives you a pretty good sense of his interest in walking and storytelling and why I'm determined to get hold of the book that Guy mentioned to me that Belloc wrote about this particular route for doing a pilgrimage. Anyway, next episode, you know partly what's coming, Brendan Barnes, but there's also an interview with a very unusual person to, to hear from, speaking as himself, the voice of an audiobook. Well, actually, the voice of lots of audiobooks, including some by the Dalai Lama and one by, well, me, actually. And I really wanted to know what it's like to record an audiobook. So I got in touch with this man, Chris Dyer, and asked him if he'd be willing to do an interview. And I was really, really delighted and surprised by some of the things that he said he discovered in Speaking Out Loud, a book which is my book, after all, about public speaking. So I hope you'll tune in for the next one. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you for listening to An Adequate Podcast with me, John Paul Flintoff. If you want to hear more episodes on this theme of self-expression, please subscribe. I'm very keen to make this podcast interactive. Send me a comment or a question, and I'll try to build it into an upcoming episode. Bye for now.